Shemai Achroiso. Hello and welcome to the New York Welsh podcast, the podcast that celebrates Welsh success stories in New York and hopefully inspires the creation of some new ones. Uh, Gideon Dewey and Richard Dewey. Hopefully, most of you have listened to our recent episode on Dylan Thomas. And if you haven't, go back and listen to it because it's my favourite. Uh, it was the walking tour of Greenwich Village on the life of Dylan Thomas. Today's guest was actually our tour guide, Swansea poet Peter Thabit Jones. He's the author of 16 books, including his well-known work, The Lizard Catchers. His poetry is featured on television in Britain, USA, Australia, Iran, and across Europe. Peter is the founding editor of The Seventh Quarry, which is a poetry magazine that he publishes in Swansea, which has a real focus on international work. He tutored drama and literature at Swansea University for 22 years, uh, retiring in 2014. Peter was in New York this past month to collect two prizes uh, that were awarded to him actually in 2017, uh, one being the Homer European Medal for Poetry and the, I'm going to mess this up, but Shab de Gucha, Journal Poet of the Year Award for his contribution to international poetry. We met him the day after the award ceremony, which was at the Yale Club the night before, and I think he said he hadn't even been to bed yet. What a rock star. What a rock star. Uh, so we discuss a bunch of different things on this episode. Um, we discussed his six-week tour of America, which he undertook in 2008 uh, with the poet Aronway Thomas, daughter of Dylan Thomas. Uh, we discussed his time spent in Big Sur in California, which is where he often goes um, to do his retreats and writing residencies. And we also talked about how he actually came to be the co-author of the Dylan Thomas Walking Tour in the first place. We recorded this episode atypically in the garden of the pub, which we found ourselves in after recording the Dylan Thomas episode. So you will hear a little bit of background noise and laughter that you wouldn't expect and not on our usual episodes. <laughs> Not the usual stern <laughs> mm, tones. There's nobody laughing on our usual episodes. Please enjoy our interview with Peter Thabit Jones. So Peter, obviously you're over uh, for a number of reasons, but last night I understand you were at the Yale Club. Actually, I think what's remarkable is you haven't been to bed. <laughs> uh, not quite. I mean, a late night. I, last night I read at uh, the Yale Club. I gave a reading organised by my... Uh, New York-based publisher Stanley Barkin of Cross-Cultural Communications and um, I was also presented with two awards uh, which uh, Stanley kept for me because uh, uh, they were present- one was presented last year and the other one uh, early last year and uh, this was the first time I returned to New York. Uh, the first is the Homer European Medal for Poetry and Art. It's a prestigious award. It's given to poets and writers who've contributed to world literature. Um, and the second one was the Shabdegucha uh, Poet of the Year Award. It's a, a Bengali-English um, uh, magazine based in New York. And uh, I was thrilled to receive them, and uh, it was a great honour. And, uh, and so... Congratulations. I mean, you see, so your agent had the, was keeping them uh, safe for you. This yes, yeah. And Why couldn't he just post them to you? Uh, because the Homer Med is, is actually... Uh, it's, 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 it's gold. And... Uh, he, he thought he'd play safe and he knew I was coming this year anyway on my way to California and so um, it was it was wonderful there were some wonderful uh, other writers there there was a lady uh, uh, from Armenia uh, there was uh, poets from Poland uh, poets from uh, Bulgaria there was a lady an actress who actually appeared in the film JFK 
and of the renowned film. She pay, played the uh, Harvey Oswald's uh, wife, and she also writes poetry. And these are contacts that my my publisher has been publishing. It'll be his 50th year next year. He's published uh, hundreds and hundreds of books in over 50 languages. Uh, that's that's his sphere. He's published people like Allen Ginsberg, uh, uh, Isaac B uh, Singer, uh, Stanley Kunitz, who was an American poet laureate. Um, he's kept dying languages alive. He did a portfolio of uh, Stanley Kunitz's one poem called The Layers. And I got a friend of mine who actually translated uh, The Layers into Welsh, which was thrilling to have a Welsh version. J.C. Evans, he's now elderly, an elderly uh, Gower poet. Um, so Stanley's done wonderful things and, um, you know, last night was special because Stanley received another award as well from uh, the same people who uh, gave me the Homer European Medal uh, for Poetry and Art. Yeah. And I'm the first Welshman to receive the award. Oh, and, yeah, that's, a, that's a good honour. And I'm actually, I believe, I'm the first British person as well, not that I regard myself. Well, speaking of that, how come you come to have an American publisher? Do you also have a UK publisher or is he your... I had a UK publisher. What happened was I was invited to um, New York in 1997 by a, a lady called Patricia Hochran. Uh, she was a Welsh woman. She saw Breakfast at Tiffany's, the film, and she fell in love with New York. And so her dream was to come and live in New York and she eventually found work as a, a kind of au pair. Uh, with a wealthy family, uh, the gentleman worked on Wall Street. And um, I'd had a piece in the evening, South Wales Evening Post. It was um, Have We Another Dylan, which of course they say about any Swansea poet who's uh, starting off. And uh, her mother used to send her cuttings because she was interested in what was happening in Swansea. And she invited me, and it wasn't until 1997 that I was able to take up the offer. You know, I had a young family and uh, I was trying to be a full-time writer, and it was a struggle and she got me a reading of all places in the Bronx and it was in an Irish pub called the Anne Beale Bocked Cafe and uh, I met uh, an African-American poet called Raymond R. Patterson who was published by Stanley, my publisher and uh, he taught at, uh, uh, at uh, CUNY actually, you know, the, the uni he taught blues poetry and uh, a wonderful man and uh, at the time I was running a magazine, it was called Swansea, I was the, I, it wasn't my magazine, I was the editor, it was called Swansea Writers and Artists Group. And um, I invited Raymond to send poetry. And he invited a, a New York poet, critic and professor, Vince Clementi, who taught at SUNY. And uh, we started corresponding. And our correspondence now is archived in Rochester University, 17 years of it. He was a, like a mentor to me, a wonderful man. Uh, and. He kept badgering me for a collection. You must have a collection, collection of poetry published in America. And uh, I kept delaying it. I was still doing other things. And eventually I sent a collection called The Lizard Catchers. And it so happened, uh, he just get, got to know Stanley Barkin. And he had a book out with Stanley, which he dedicated to me, his Welsh brother, actually. And um, Stanley ended up publishing my first American book, The Lizard Catchers. And when was that? What year? Uh, that was 2006. Okay, yeah, so yeah. that was after, so it was well, seven years after, no, longer than that, yeah. uh, almost my, ten years after your first yeah, visit. Yeah, my first visit, yes. Yeah. And then, of course, um, Stanley uh, was talking about uh, organising readings for me in New York. And one night I was going down to the Dylan Thomas Centre to meet a Ronway. We had a mutual friend, Martin Holroyd, who was uh, Ronway's uh, UK publisher. And I knew Martin from decades ago. We were involved in uh, 
a publication that was Leicester-based, you know, a poetry journal. And um, I said to Stanley, look, I, I, this is wonderful, but I can't talk about visiting America to give readings at the moment. I'm going to meet a Ronway Thomas and a UK publisher. And Stanley said, a Ronway Thomas, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, that uh, rings a bell. And I said, the daughter of Dylan Thomas. He said, what? He said, you didn't tell me you knew the daughter of Dylan Thomas. And I said, yes. And uh, he said, I'm going to think about this. And for, so from that, um, he came up with the idea of a Ronway and I doing a, a crossing from New York to California, reading some of her father's works and some of her own works. And Ronway was very keen to do it. Uh, she said, I can't think of a, someone to do it other than you, Peter. You're a gentleman. And um, she'd had many offers. And she was keen, of course, to experience some of what her father experienced. We actually did some readings in places where Dylan read. So, for instance, uh, Wellesley College, you know. Where's, um, where's Wellesley College? Wellesley College is, uh, is, 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 is Boston, no? Okay. And were you, uh, and were you driving or was it, like, how was uh, flying? We were, um, was we were flying all over the place and then our hosts would um, actually um, drive us to venues and some of them would put us up. I've actually um, just published is uh, America, it's my latest book, it's America, Runway and Me. And it's uh, a celebration of that, uh, that six weeks in America. So, and it'll be available soon on Amazon after we've done the launch in California in June. Uh, so that's why you're going. That's why you're here right now. Is I'm going actually. Trip. I'm going for that, but I'm also going since 2010. Um, when we did the 2008 West Coast defiant penultimate reading at Monterey College, a lady called Caroline Caroline Mary Kleefeld, who's a poet and artist, and based in Big Sur. We met her, and um, she came to the reading at Monterey College. There was like 500 people in the audience. And you know, about six months later, she, via John Dotson, who hosted us there, who's also published by Stanley, um, she said, I'd like to invite Peter to my cabin, you know, as a writing residence. And I couldn't take it up for two years because I was busy writing, you know, the, the book, the, 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 the uh, well, the, the tour, the walking tour. And, um, I eventually took it up and I've been going, this will be my 10th time. So I'm based in a cabin about 10 minutes from the Pacific Ocean. I'm on a private mountain. There's no public access for 30 miles. How do you, how do you own a mountain? That's amazing. Uh, no, the, the, what I mean is various people have properties on that mountain, various wealthy people. And um, they, um, it's private in that sense. You, you can only access it. You know, you can't wander around the mountain as a tourist, do you see what I'm saying? And I, well, my nearest neighbour up until he died was Vilma Sigmund, the famous cinematographer, who was cinematographer on The Deer Hunter, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and all kinds of uh, uh, films. And I got to know them, uh, him and his wife Susan, who's still there. And one July the 4th, they asked me to give a reading uh, to some friends in their home, which is like 10 minutes from my cabin. I brought uh, provisions by a lady uh, fortnightly. And I have to do, you know, I have to write in my keep, you know. And I have to do occasional readings and uh, talks in so, the area. So you'll get picked up and then you'll And go, then I'm taking yes, And will that yeah. be the only interaction you tend to have with people? Yes, yes, it's, it's very solitary. It's not for everyone. I have writer friends who said they would never do it, you know. Um, I have an understanding wife. She's a children's nurse. All the children are now grown up. So we spend a lot of time because she's a children's nurse, you know, working shift work. And she's very understanding and uh, I've produced a lot. I've produced dramas. One that was produced last year called The Fire in the Wood, full, full production. I've produced uh, two other dramas, a book called Poems from 
a cabin on Big Sur, probably three books unpublished, and uh, I'm going to work on an unfinished novel uh, this summer. Do you find it's like your most productive time? Um, I'm quite productive at home because I have my own writing room, but it's just, it takes you somewhere else, do you know what I mean? It's a different environment, so it's a break from, you know, the room I have looks on a, an unused field, do you say? Um, but it's so inspiring, you know, and um, I am a good worker, there's no television, there's a CD and a few Bob Dylan uh, CDs available. I wake up, I have breakfast, I write, I take a break, I may go for a walk, I come back, I write, I then do lunch, I'll go for a walk, and then the evening I'll spend looking over what I've uh, done, and then I may listen to music on, you know, the laptop or on the CD and I'll answer emails. So, do you find it easy? Do you, will you just sit down and always start writing, or do you have days where you won't write, or oh, hours? Oh yes, yeah. when you, you have days write? when you've really got to push it, you know. And do you uh, have a particular time of day where you find yourself most productive? Like, how what time do you start? Like? So, when the children were small back in Swansea, um, you know, I liked it when they were all in bed, and you know, in my wife then, um, I, she was a nurse. So if it was a night shift, I'd be in charge of the children and they'd be in bed and then I love that twilight period you know you kind of go midnight into twilight where your mind goes elsewhere but nowadays I can write any you know I'm, I, I can write anywhere you know and at any time um, I, you know I, I kind of know what I want to write what I want to work on you know and uh, when you're working on a drama it's, it's a substantial piece of work so basically it's just you have everything down I've made notes you know I've made character notes I've idea of the plot you always let it breathe, you know, so that other day, other ideas can come in and ignite you, you know. But um, it's basically against the push. It's like, you know, like Dylan Thomas said, I labour by singing light. You know, there's, there's work you, you put in the hours, you know. So someone once said it's 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, and there's a lot of truth in that, you know. The life I live, it's so busy. I mean, I, I not only write, I edit a, a magazine called the Seventh Quarry Swansea Poetry Magazine. It's an international magazine and uh, it's quite popular and uh, that comes out twice a year. I'm now into publishing poetry books in, by international poets. Uh, I'm a, I've just published one American poet, I'm about to publish two others. I publish Welsh poets as well. Um, so I've always got something on the go. I'm also working on a commissioned biography of the, my hostess in California, Carolyn Mary Kleefeld. Um, but I'm one of these, you know, I am a workaholic and I can go from one thing to the other. I can kind of do a bit of the biography and then go to my own work, do you see what I'm saying? And poems, they're like bats, they come at night, I mean, they're always coming. I mean, you know, you, you can't catch a poet, you know, a poem that can catch a bird, you know. I mean, you've got to wait for them to settle and kind of thing and then, do you see what I'm saying? And um, so, you know, touch wood, poems will always come, you know. Um, you, you touched on it uh, a moment ago. Um, talking about when you were, you know, I suppose an emerging poet in Swansea. Yes, yes. The article, do we have another Dylan? Yes. Do you find that, you know, just being from Swansea and a poet, of course, invites yes. comparison with Dylan, whether you like it or not? Well, it does, and uh, to come back to a wrong way, she used to say to me, because once Stanley named the, he named it the Dylan Thomas Tribute Tour, right? She, she said, it's difficult for you, and I said, no, no, it's more difficult for you. You're his daughter. Imagine picking up a pen, and she was a wonderful poet, humble poet, very craft, you know, into craftsmanship. I said, no, it's more difficult for you because uh, you've got the big shadow hanging with you. But obviously, yes, I mean, but I was lucky, see, because there are so many differences between Dylan and I. I, you know, Dylan once described Swansea as the ugly, lovely town. I was born on the ugly side. Dylan was born in the lovely, I was born in the working class area. 
uh, below Kilvale, Robert Owen Gardens that runs along there. Um, the, the houses in St. Yes. Thomas. I always yes. think from a distance they look like um, a Lowry. That's right, yeah. And my friend actually has a Lowry type style, actually. The friend I mentioned earlier, who did the cover of my lizard catchers. Nick Holly, he's a well-known Swansea painter. But um, I, I was working class, Dylan was more middle class. Uh, I was raised by my grandparents. My grandfather was literally dying in a bed in the parlour. I know he'd served in the two world wars. And luckily for, for me, um, Dylan didn't write much, if anything, about the East Side. Dylan's uh, mother, Florence, actually came from Delhi Street. She was born in Delhi Street, so she came from the East Side. But, um, so luckily for me, Dylan didn't cover that landscape, so it was open to me, you know. And of course, you, when you first start writing, this, my grandfather was dying in a bed in the parlour. Um, he was one thing I wanted to write about, you know. I remember my first poem was very dramatic. It was something like, the bed of bones that breathe and groan and moan beneath the unchanged blankets, you know. It was very dramatic. Um, so I was blessed in a sense that I was born where I was because had I been born on the west side, I would have felt more of a pressure being born in Dylan Swansea, you know. But having said that, I mean, undoubtedly influenced me. Um, you know, especially uh, the sound texturing. But the first, the, the, the first inspiration really was another Welsh poet. I went to Danny Gray Boys School. Uh, it was a rough school. I was about six foot four when I started out, you know. And um, um, the teacher, Mr. James, was a wonderful teacher. I later found out that he taught Welsh drama throughout the whole, the, the old West Glamorgan. Um, and one day he read a poem. Uh, I'd been writing pop lyrics, to be honest, influenced by the Beatles. And, and how old? I, I was, just a I was uh, 11, 11 years old. I was a big fan of John Lennon. I mean, John Lennon made a major impact on my thinking, you know. And um, he read a poem called The Kingfisher by W.H. Davis, who came from Newport and was a tramp poet. He tramped across America and he lost a leg, actually. And he wrote a wonderful book called The Autobiography of a Super Tramp. Did you ever hear of the pop group Supertramp? Right. They probably got the name. Yeah, they probably got the name from there. And the opening is it was the rain it was the rainbow gave the birth, you know, old English the. And I was blown away, you know. Because I'd seen a kingfisher down by Potena Canal, you know, only once probably. And I thought, oh wow, rainbow because if you think of the colours of rainbow, that one word, you know, it lit up in me and I thought, oh you can do that with the language, you know. And oddly, the other poem he then read was The Hunchback in the Park by Dylan Thomas. But he didn't say, for some reason, he didn't say Dylan was born in the Upland Swansea. That was really the, the you know, God, I want to be a poet, I don't want to be a pop star kind of thing, you know. It, it, it started and, um, that young. So, uh, yeah, so... Did you, only, any, did you have anyone in your family no, that no, was like no, arty no, or creative? No. The only books... Um, I'm distantly related to Harry Siku, and that's one of the claims on my uh, grandmother's side. Um, but to who, sorry? Uh, Harry Sigum. Yeah. Who's that? Uh, he was uh, singer and actor, and he was uh, he played Mr. Bumble in the film Oliver. Oh. That's his okay. most famous role. Yeah. Okay. But um, I got a newspaper job, you know, to earn some money, and uh, around about the age of thirteen, I was I joined Swansea Central Library. The only books back home were the Bible. I kind of looked at the Bible, and the, for odd, oddly, I found in what we call the spare room there was the Contiki Expedition. And to this day, I don't know how we got there, you know, because there's just no books there. We, 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 were, we weren't well off enough to have books in, you know, my grandmother's. She was the mother of uh, 15 children. She brought up my brother and myself and uh, two other children. So, you know, the, there wasn't much money there. 
I joined Central Swansea Central Library and I went ran to the poetry section and I looked for Dylan Thomas and then I could see other poets, W.B. Yeats, uh, uh, Emily Dickinson, the American poet, uh, Edward Thomas, who's a favorite poet of mine, John Clare and so forth. And I just got hooked and I started to take out biographies on poets, critical books on poets. And I started with my newspaper money to buy J.M. Dents, Dylan's publisher, all the paperback versions of what Dylan had, pub had written and been published. And um, he was a major influence, Dylan Thomas. And, and did you say, so you, were you supported? Like, did you say, I'm going to be a poet? Like, that's going to be oh, my I, I, I gave my life over to poetry. Yeah. And, uh, and did people support you? Like, yeah, you can. My grandmother did, in fairness. And, um, my, you know, uh, my grandfather, before he died, he said, I, oddly, the write up I mentioned, uh, uh, or I think I mentioned my reason for being invited to America. I mentioned to you two certainly about Avery and other Dylan in the South Wales Human Post. He read that just before he died, and uh, he was quite proud of that, you know. And um, but I was, yeah, my grandmother encouraged me. Some of my uncles like, uh, what are you doing, kind of thing. Well, I was at the kitchen table in my grandmother's where I lived, and my uncle Ivor looked over my shoulder and said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I'm trying to write a poem." I said, go out and play football with the boys. But I was stubborn enough not to, you know, I knew what I wanted to do. And um, there, there has to be a tenaciousness, I think, to being uh, what you want to be in life. And um, I literally, you know, and Seamus Heaney, the Irish poet, talks about giving all your life over to poetry, and you really have to. And so really, I was, I just read everything to do with poetry, you know, biographies, literature, and I was self-taught. Uh, and then I... So after you were completely self-taught. Yeah, and then after that, right up in the post, um, some other Swansea poets who were published already with teachers uh, contacted me and said, you know, meet up for a drink. And I used to meet them in the Brynamo pub in Swansea. And um, I learned from them then, you know, and that's the way it is. And then, you know, so-and-so says, I'm doing a read, and you must come along and read. And, you know, have you tried such and such a magazine? So the first two magazines I was publishing were Poetry Wales and the Anglo-Welsh Review. Poetry Wales is still going, the Anglo-Welsh Review is now defunct. But uh, it was thrilling, absolutely thrilling, you know, to be published uh, at the age of 18 going on 19. But yeah. at what age were you when you were able to just support yourself with your writing? Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, I started off training to be an accountant with one of my uncles and uh, my auntie had married a, a well-off Englishman who was a businessman, ran a pre precision engineering company. But I think three years in, I, you know, I went to college and that, I knew I wanted to be a poet. And I kind of drifted, I went underground, I worked uh, on salvage in Abernant for two years, uh, which was an experience. I wrote one long poem called The First Day Underground. Uh, I did some digging roads, I did some scaffolding, I did some office work and I drifted. drifted. And, um, then I decided, well, okay, I'm going to be a freelance writer. But of course, in between, I was, I got married, and I started to have a lot of children. Um, I'm the father of six. Uh, my second son, Matthew, passed away. But um, it was tough, and I tried to stick at um, uh, freelancing for like 15 years. But it was really tough. And some of my Swansea poet teacher friends, they said, get into education, you know, get the qualifications. And so I did it as a mature student, and I got the qualifications. And I ended up working at Swansea University uh, in the Department of Adult Continuing Education, uh, part-time degree level, and um, and that became my bread and butter, you know. And I retired in 2015, and um, I was lucky enough then 
the lady in Big Sur, she commissioned me to write a biography. So at the moment, that's my bread and butter, you know. So, you know, it's tough. It's, you know, it's, I've broken into dramas and now I've broken into opera libretti. Um, my first uh, libretti was performed at the Philharmonie Luxembourg. What is it as a libretti? A libretti is the lyrics for an opera. So uh, there's this wonderful Luxembourg composer called Albina Frajanska Petrovic. She's so successful, she was given an award by, uh, I think it's like the equivalent of the Knight's Garter there. And she was um, directed to my website and she, uh, by a, a Bulgarian poet I met several years ago. And she could see that I'd written dramas and she wondered whether I'd be interested in writing the libretti for operas. So the first one was a chamber libretti and it uh, premiered at the Philharmonie Luxembourg uh, in 2018. It was a wonderful experience. And the second one, Love and Jealousy, a full opera with costumes and full orchestra, premiered at the State Opera House in Bulgaria last May, but I couldn't go because I was a writer in residence in Big Sur. But it's now premiering in Luxembourg in December, and I will go You'll along You'll be able to, to go. Yeah. So the money starts to trickle in kind of slightly, you know what I'm saying? Um, but I'm, you know, it's, it's a labor of love, really, you know, I mean, uh, and my advice to any emerging young poet would don't be what I did with a large family, tried to be a freelance writer, you know, wait until you've got a steady job and, uh, you know, that would be one thing I would say to them, you know. But no regrets, as uh, Edith P. have said, no regrets. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that tour, the tour that you were talking about? Uh, I came in 1990, did we record this or did I just tell you in passing? Okay, 1997 I was invited to New York, and new, to do reading, readings in New York, New Jersey, by uh, uh, an ex-Swansea woman called Patricia Hockman. Yes, yeah, so you told us that, but you only told us about then meeting... Um, David Slifka. Yeah, that, that was yeah. it, but I think... I was commissioned by Rian Evans, and this is interesting, who was the arts editor at the time of the Western Mail to write postcards from New York. Now, Rian, uh, a lovely woman, she is the daughter of John Ormond, who is also a Swansea poet from Dunvant, who actually knew Dylan Thomas and who actually made a film about Dylan um, for the BBC. Um, and, um, documentary type a film. Documentary type of film, yes. So you get all these connections and I, I met John several times, John Ormond, a wonderful poet and a wonderful man. Um, and then, as I said, you know, the, the second uh, one was 2008 and I've been coming back and forth since. I mean, uh, I got to know a lot of people, you know, a lot of people in the literary world and uh, I keep getting, you know, get, they invite me back and so I go to Colorado sometimes and uh, I go to Massachusetts and I do work there, you know. Favourite spot that you've been to in the US? Uh, believe it or not, it, it's probably Colorado. Um, Colorado uh, Boulder, Colorado, yeah. which is absolutely beautiful. Uh, I mean, I love Big Sur, obviously. I, mean, yeah. but, uh, I was actually in Big Sur last week, yeah, I was, two weeks ago. Yeah, I, was I was cycling blown, there. It's fabulous. It's beautiful. Yeah. I was blown away by uh, Boulder, I have to, yeah. I have to say. But, uh, yes. Uh, but I love New York, I love the buzz, you know. I'm one of these people, I either like um, a cabin away from everyone or I like a city, do you know what I mean? I mean, like uh, the, the both. You yeah. like the extremes? Yeah, the extremes, yeah. Um, for and postcards, what was your delivery? Like, what were you, was it like a weekly column? Or uh, no, the, the, the commission basically was that I would send in a, a number of postcards about my experiences to Rian. So, for instance, I sent one about meeting David Slifka. I spent one about what it was like to be in the Chelsea Hotel where Dylan stayed and... Uh, and and tragically became unconscious. 
And it was basically that kind of thing. And when you say a postcard, what length are we talking? Um, they were just one or two, three paragraphs that she put in uh, the art section of the West. Okay, and then would they be photographed and put in, or were they just... No, no, they just, would just the text, just the text. Okay. That's cool, yeah. But she did... Um, but not as quite as immediate as you'd get today with, like... No, <laughs> no, no, exactly, no. The same and, kind uh, of concept, though. Yeah, right? same concept, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, early tweets, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, but um, she very kindly also asked me, uh, when I was back in Wales then, Swansea, to review some uh, dramas and things like that. So, you know, and then she eventually, uh, she either left or retired from, uh, from the position, you know. But you know, all that kind of helps you to establish yourself. But it also, um, it assists your craft in writing, you know. So you're suddenly doing something that you never thought you'd do. Oh gosh, I've got a, a word count for a postcard that I've got to send to the Western Mail, the leading newspaper in Wales, do you mean? Yeah. And so it's all good as a writer, you know. It's all adding to your, your, your kit bag of tricks, if you like, as a writer, you know. What is, you talked a lot about class, like earlier you talked about Dylan Thomas and the two sides of the city, um, and obviously your own upbringing. How's 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 that played on your mind, and how's that played into your writing specifically when you even have now come to the U.S. where it's you know I think well I have got friends uh, I have friends actually in California who say uh, you keep going on about your working class you know and I just smile um, I think it's very important to me um, uh, for several reasons um, I mean I was lucky enough to be raised by my grandparents who were wonderful you know they give us my brother and I good morals and they give us a good grounding. They were always fair. I loved the way they would give you two versions of a thing. So if they saw monarchy on, on television, probably black and white when we were children, they would say why people didn't like monarchy and why people liked the monarchy, you know? And that was a really good grounding. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think... Why, and, why did they... I mean, I, just to yeah. stop on that for a second. Like that, I don't think that's that common. Like, I, yeah. I think about when people I know, I, yeah. often people would be yeah. given the views of their parents would be passed down. Yeah. They can what? sometimes recite them without yeah. even knowing. So, so what, what, what was it about your parents that made them feel... Do you, you ever know why they would give you that two sides um, of the argument? Or? Well, my, I, I, I try, I'll try to answer. I don't know the, you know, the, the, the true answer, but as I said, my grandfather fought in the first, second, first and uh, second world wars and was basically dying in the parlour through, from when I was small, a toddler, till, till he died. My grandmother was basically his nurse, and of course she'd given birth to 15 of her own children. But I think it was more to do with uh, the way working class people were then, do you see what I'm saying? Uh, it was the kind of them and us, and they knew it. Um, but there was no like kind of um, aggression or envy about it, do you see what I'm saying? There was no envy, it was like, well that's the way they live. I don't mean monarchy, but I mean the better off, and this is the way we live. Um, they were good people as well, and um, uh, I mean, they said my my grandmother insisted on my brother and I going to Sunday school, you know, that kind of thing at an early age. Um, so I can't give you a true answer, but I, I that's all. I always remember that they would always give you two sides. So my grandfather, for instance, would, uh, and I wrote a drama about uh, my grandfather about the, his experiences in the First World War in particular. Um, he fed my young mind with, like, if you like, negative images, but he would also feed me with why young men were attracted to fight in the First World War. My grandmother lost two brothers, Alfred and Frank, 16 and 17 years old in the First World War. And, um, you know, if you think of it, there wasn't a family throughout the UK who weren't impacted by that war. But I think it was, to come back to your question, Richard, I think it was, it was just that generation. Um, 
you know, they would discuss things. They wouldn't just say, well, I don't like so-and-so, or, do you know what I mean? And we saw, they would give you reasons why they particularly didn't like something, you know? And, and, but why other people would like something, you know? And, uh, and I'm so grateful for that. I am so grateful, you know? Um, we seem to live into a society that seems so like, split, whether it's you know in the US or even back home with an issue yeah, like Brexit. Yeah, like, exactly. People seem to draw sides so quickly versus and, like have maybe like like debates. And what they don't. To each side. Uh, what I find is people don't want to discuss things. So even if you're on the opposite side, they just want to either shout you down, you know, about your their, your opinion or their opinion. And um, but that's what. Uh, that's what I got from my grandparents, and I'm eternally grateful for, for, for that as a, as a person, you know. Um, and because the poet should always be, I, say, I said this last night at Yale Club when I was asked by a, a poet there, the poet should always be outside the circle, if you like, looking in, because then you can see the full picture, do you see what I'm saying? And um, so I like that image, you know, of the poet being out looking in, you know. What do you, what do you see as the, like, if you define the role of the poet, or how you or how you like to be as a poet? I think, um, I think one of the main things is firstly to communicate and to hopefully communicate things that are uh, interesting to, to the poet, uh, you know, that the poet has experienced, uh, be it grief or joy, uh, to convey that, you know. And, um, you know, I think that the poet is blessed and that the uh, the poet can articulate things. So I mentioned uh, to you earlier, I lost a son. And I always remember I gave a reading in the Oriel Bookshop, uh, which is uh, run by the Welsh Arts Council in Cardiff, uh, when I was a young poet. And uh, I read some poems about my son, and an elderly woman came up, and she said, I went through it, she said. You know, this was after, after the reading. And she said, but you actually, she said, you articulated what I felt, which I just couldn't put into words. And I think, so I think that's wonderful that a poet can do, do that. I think a poet can uh, assist with language. Is language is being dumbed down all the time? Do you see what I'm saying? Dumbed down all the time, and I think that it's so important that we keep a living language. You know, a colourful language, the colour of saying, as Dylan Thomas said. And I think poets can do that. You know, of course, at times of tragedy, whether it's a war or personal grief or uh, something like 9/11 people often turn to the poetry they t you know that's the only way they can express themselves was that the case for you did you find it was it was it harder to, to, to express yourself in that way or was it that the same way for you was it like a, 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 um, you, a way of coping like a mechanism of coping well I was a writer before I lost my son and um, uh, but I think that my grandfather dying in the bed in the parlor death was always present and because I was reading poets like Dylan Thomas uh, who write all about death and so I had a notion of literary death if you like and um, but I when my own experience was that um, I wrote poems when my grandfather died and when other relatives died. Um, but when my son died, I um, I literally stopped writing for about three years. Um, you know, it was a crossroads for me. It was like, you know, um, do I do I really want to carry on writing? It's the thing is, is you. Um, um, you kind of go into a cul-de-sac. Um, you. There's nothing shining in the world, if you see what I mean. Nothing seems to shine anymore. And when you lose a, a, a child, particularly a baby, uh, people are sometimes, they don't know what to say in fairness. But I was young, you know, and um, you'd wonder why people would cross the street. How rather old than, were you? I was 20, 24. 
And so you kind of, people cross the road, and you, now and now I understand, of course, you know, but you didn't understand, and um, so it was a crossroads for me, and um, and then, you know, I didn't know, but I felt, well, it's the only thing I can do, really, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. Up until that point, I, I was kind of sub-Dylan Thomas, probably sub-Ted Hughes, sub-a few other poets, sub-Edward Thomas, and I suddenly realised, well, I really have experienced something now that... Dylan Thomas didn't experience and probably other poets didn't and I have to find my own voice and that was the beginning of finding my own voice and I think that um, that's a major thing for a poet here because um, when critics look at a poet's work it's all about their own I mean D Dylan Thomas has a very individual poetic voice uh, which is very you know for a young poet you've got to kind of stay away from it because it sucks you in it's so powerful and I think uh, that was the turning point for me, you know, that I started to find my own voice, you know. And on the um, flip side of that, yeah. rather than, than that, that horrible experience yeah. uh, informing your work, mm. you could look at it like this. Having already been a writer, you had prepared yourself, you had now had the tools to deal yes, with that experience in point, another uh, way that other people point, might not Very good point, yes. I mean, Charles Bukowski, the American poet, once said, an early taste of death is not a bad thing for a poet. And I can see where he's coming from, I mean. Um, but yeah, having the craftsmanship and the tools to kind of... Uh, so, um, one, of the, one of the first books that followed not long after was um, a book called The Cold Cold Corner. And uh, oddly, I'd come across, when I was, uh, I mentioned Mr. James, the school teacher, earlier on, and he read a poem called The Child Dying by uh, the Scottish poet Edwin Muir. And I was always, I couldn't understand it, but it's a, the lines are Father, Father, so this is the father of the child. Father, Father, I dread this air, blown from the dark side of despair, the cold, cold corner. And he doesn't use a comma after the first cold. And I was always intrigued by that. So the book that kind of, it wasn't all about my son, but there was a long sequence poem called The Cold, Cold Corner. And I wanted to do something concrete, so I contacted the Foundation for the Study of Infant Deaths and at the time, now can I remember the gentleman, uh, there was uh, one of the actors who played Doctor Who, Colin, Colin something his name was, he had lost a child and he was involved with the foundation of the study for the study of infant death and so all the proceeds of my book went to that charity. You know? well, thank, thank, I mean, thank you for sharing, I mean I know it's, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it does provide a lot of um, comfort for people who can experience the same thing. I was actually back in when I was back in the UK. I was reading about a, a football club that's got together, and it's for bereaving fathers. Yeah. It's for them yeah. because there isn't necessarily the outlet for them after that experience to find someone who's maybe gone through. It. And it's not a, they play football on a Sunday and they try and win, but it's really about being with each other, really. So I'm sure it. Well, I think I can. You know, I think the the, the, the dilemma for a, a poet or any writer is always. When you, you know, the grief is the big thing in all our lives, isn't it? But be it your father, your mother, your grandfather, your uncle, your sister, a cousin or whatever, or a friend, a dear close friend or a, a wife or whatever, is the dilemma is, is uh, how, you know, you, you, uh, uh, the only word I can think of is, is like, you have to get this balance where you're not prostituting your emotions, you know what I mean? Um, what your experiences. And it's a fine, fine balance, you know, to get it right. But the comforting thing, as I said, about the, the elderly lady earlier, is when you do connect, you know, when someone says, well, 
well, I, I've gone through that. I've just lost my father. Yeah. Um, you know, and I spoke earlier of uh, how Dylan Thomas's poem, wonderful poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, is used at funerals by people and they, they find comfort in it. And so that's the, that's the wonderful positive side of, of uh, such an experience that something that you write can kind of assist uh, someone else through their darkness, you know, and uh, I can't think of any better thing myself for, for it. It's amazing to think that this lady who you had never met at the time when you wrote yes, it. Yes. That's probably one of the really nice things about writing a poem that that uh, gets gets seen around the world is not just the you know the, yes, the fame that comes with it, but the idea that you are being able to communicate with these people that you would never. That is more with. yeah, that's far more important to me. I mean, someone said to me um, uh, last night actually. Um, so mischief because we'd all had a few drinks, but mischief city, and this happens amongst poets. So you're trying to get to the top, are you? And I said, no, I'm just going along a road. And I, I do feel that. I've just gone the road of my life, like you are, like you are, and you are, you know. It just so happens that um, I kind of preserve things in mind. And Philip Larkin talked about that, that the poet preserves things, you know. It's, it's about, but that's, you know, that's the only difference. And, um, you know, it's like when you need a plumber, don't call a poet. You know, when you need a poet, don't call a plumber. Um, Dylan Thomas once said this wonderful thing. He, he actually said man's, but of course it was just the rhythm of the thing, the work, you know. This world which is each man's work. I would extend that to this world which is each man's and each woman's work. Um, everything, is in, everything is significant, everything is important. Nothing, you know, a poet isn't better than uh, a, po a non-poet and a non-poet isn't better than a poet. And uh, I firmly believe that, you know, firmly believe it. Um, One thing we always ask uh, on all these episodes is um, if there's anyone out there listening who consider themselves a writer or a poet and is wondering how to go about that, what advice would you be able to give them or would you like to give them? Well, I said firstly, don't make the mistake I made of uh, being an impoverished poet. I think, like I did when I was a young poet, is read as much as you can, you know. Read all kinds of poetry, you know, female poetry, male poetry, American poetry, uh, British poetry, Irish poetry, African-American poetry, S Spanish poetry in translation, any poetry in translation, I did a lot of that. And start to read biographies of poets, because one is, um, you know, people will forget you're a poet. You say to a friend, I'm writing poetry, and they say, oh, I, yeah, but what do you really do, you know? Always remember, you're a poet, you want to be a poet. And so reading the lives of poets, will endorse that, you know, you see the struggles they had, you know, that they struggled not just financially, but they struggled socially being poets, and they struggled, you know, learning the craft. And also read literary criticism, you know, start to, what makes a poem tick? What is the craft of a poem? Read about formal poetry, informal poetry, the tricks of the trade, you know? You know, how does Yeats, you know, get that effect in a poem? How does Dylan Thomas, you know, conclude that poem in a wonderful way? Learn the craft, you know. As I said earlier, Dylan said, I labour by singing light. You've got to put in the hours, you know. If you, put, if you give yourself over to poetry, poetry will reward you. I've no doubt about that. I've been very blessed in my life, you know. Um, very blessed. Okay. And before we go, maybe you could just, if anyone who does want to follow up about yourself and find anything about you online. Well, my website. Yeah, yeah what's your website? It's www.petersabbatjones.com and uh, it's, it's up to date, you know, I mean, I think it mentions my uh, 
certainly mentions my visit, you know, to to the Yale Club and um, on my website, for instance, you can access some of my poems, you know, and um, some of my uh, prose pieces, I believe, or certainly pro. I think there's a piece actually about um, Five Cum Donkin Drive. There is when I first uh, went there and I taught for the university in, at Five Cum Donkin Drive, the Dylan Thomas birthplace. Um, so yes, and you can access my magazine if poets want to submit poems as well, young poets. So that's great, you know. You know that any emerging poets, they're more than welcome to submit uh, for consideration for the magazine. You know. Yeah. I mean, because my magazine, it, I, put, I mean, I've done interviews with like uh, Gregory uh, uh, Rabassa, who he's passed away now, but he uh, he did the famous translation of. Uh, Gabriel Marcus's 100 Years of Solitude. He was a Nobel Prize winner. And I've done interviews with him. I've done interviews with Andre de Bruce III, who's a major American novelist. He wrote the... Did you ever see the film House of Sand and Fog? It's about an immigrant family, uh, Iranian, and how they try to adapt to America and the problems they have as uh, immigrants. And uh, I interviewed him from a magazine. But having said that, I also publish brand new poets. You know? nothing, nothing gives me more thrill than seeing a, a poet published for the first time, you know, and uh, so that. That was great. Thank you thank so you. much. Yeah, Peter, thank I'm, so, you. I'm so glad we managed to squeeze this in. Thank as well. you. Well, I'm, thank you. I've been thoroughly enjoyed myself. Yeah. Thank you for just. As you can see, I'm a typical <laughs> Welshman. I can go on and on. No. I can talk and talk. No, th thank you for being so generous, uh, so generous with your time and you know with your stories and uh, all of your experiences and sharing that today with us and your work with the world. Thank so, you very much. Well, we hope you enjoyed listening, and if you did, then please subscribe and leave us a review, as long as it's positive. The more people review the show, the more people will get to hear the show. Yeah, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, then please do. The email is podcast at newyorkwelsh.com, or you can contact us through any of the socials. Both our Instagram and Twitter are at newyorkwelsh. And if you'd like to stay up to date with the latest goings-on, you can do so by subscribing to the monthly newsletter on our website, newyorkwelsh.com. Oh.